My sermon text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open it up and keep them open. Uh, During my passages, I'll keep referring back to some specifics in the text. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The word of our Lord. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word this day. Well, I have come to Scotland with good news this morning. I was reading the newspaper at my hotel in Edinburgh yesterday morning, and I discovered that I had come on just the right weekend to be here. Apparently, in the UK, yesterday was a holiday dedicated to record stores. Did you know that? Did the church celebrate that, like, as a whole, with a potluck dinner or something? Well, I'm so excited about that, because when I was a young boy, my older brother, who was a drummer, and I waited expectantly online at record stores whenever a new album from England would come to the United States. I'm old enough to remember when the Beatles invaded. I was part of that invasion. I remember the Dave Clark Five. Now that tells how old I am. I remember Herman's Hermits and all those groups, and my brother, who was older than me, would buy the albums. I would get to listen to them, but he would look at them because he was a musician and quirky. He'd make sure that there wasn't any warps. They had to be just perfect, and then we would listen. He would put the needle on the vinyl, and we would just go to heaven listening to all this British music. Ah, but time goes on and progress has been made. And the vinyl long-playing record album went the way of the dinosaur and the dodo bird. And I've got to admit that all these decades, cassettes and eight tracks and now digital recordings just seem a little cold to me. They seem just a little lifeless. There's nothing like the pop and the sizzle and the noise from an old vinyl album. And so I had to come all the way to Edinburgh to discover that in this past week or so, for the first time in decades, in your country, the sale of old-fashioned vinyl records surpassed the value of downloads from the internet for music. Vinyl records have been resurrected from the dead. And so as a Christian, I believe in resurrection. (laughs) 
And so even though we celebrated that holiday resurrection Sunday last week in church, this weekend we can celebrate the resurrection. It's the first fruits of Jesus' Easter experience in 2017. Resurrection is at the heart of what we Christians proclaim and believe. And in this passage from Philippians, which is one of the key passages in all of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, my mentor through my life, does something that is rather odd. And you may have missed it, but it's a gem that he inserts into this letter to the Philippians that deserves our concerted attention. Look at verse 10, if you have your Bibles still open. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know of anyone who was ever resurrected before they died. Isn't that interesting? Don't we usually assume you have life, you then unfortunately die, hopefully at a ripe old age, and then you are resurrected from the dead according to our Christian faith and proclamation. But the Apostle Paul, who understood the mystery of the gospel better than all of us in this room put together probably, does not use that order when he speaks about the mystery of the faith. He doesn't go death to resurrection. Curiously, did you notice? He says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and then fellowship with his sufferings. Now, maybe the Apostle Paul made a mistake. Maybe he got it all mixed up. And he didn't realize that resurrection comes after death, not before death. Or maybe, just maybe, there's a hidden gem of Christian truth that we need to contemplate because Paul knew exactly what he was saying and put the words in the exact order that he meant them to have. So what does it mean for us to experience resurrection so that we might experience the fellowship of his sufferings and his death? I would like to suggest that when we properly understand this verse, we have come to grips with the meaning of both the corporate and individual Christian journeys that God has called each and every one of us to. Let's take the corporate one first. What Paul is trying to say to us is that the spiritual journey of the church of God is predicated upon the successful conclusion of Jesus' personal spiritual journey. There would be no church if Jesus hadn't been born of a virgin and come from heaven emptying himself and entered into human history. There would be no church if Jesus hadn't given his new covenant teachings, the Sermon on the Mount and his parables, etc. There would be no church if he had not celebrated the Last Supper, transforming Passover into a new allegory of Christian life. There would be no church if he had not died, for in his death we receive the forgiveness of our sins. But none of that would have been sufficient, even though all of it was necessary, if he had not been resurrected from the dead 
on Easter morning. It is the successful completion of Jesus' journey, embraced voluntarily and with complete and utter simple faithfulness, that allows the church to come into being and have its mission given to it. Without Easter, there is no Pentecost. Without Pentecost, there is no mission. And so it turns out that the church cannot receive its marching orders unless we experience up front the power of Jesus' resurrection. It is the new life promised in his resurrection that gives us hope, that gives us faith, that challenges us to share good news with others. The fact that the deepest existential problem that we all have, that of the cessation of life, has been definitively conquered by the loving sacrifice of Jesus and his personal triumph over death allows us to give an authentic message of good news to other people. Without the resurrection, we are nothing. Without the resurrection, we have no reason to be meeting this morning. Without the resurrection, there is no empowerment of the Holy Spirit in order to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so in a very real sense, what Paul is trying to tell the church in Philippians, and by extension, the church now in the 21st century, is that we have a journey because Jesus successfully completed his. You know, we like to think we are the originator of the experiences in our lives. But the fact is, every one of us owes our life to our parents. Our parents owed their life to their parents, and backwards in time we go. In the same way, every generation of the church owes its existence to prior generations traced all the way back to that seminal journey of Jesus Christ. And so, since our corporate life together is based on the life, teaching, and power of Jesus, it is his resurrection that calls us together, calls us into being, gives us purpose, and gives our life significance and ministry. It is the resurrection of Jesus that distinguishes us as a people from any other human institution and any other club. There are many good organizations that people have created that do good. We're not unique in that. What makes us unique is the fact we've been called together by the resurrection. But beyond that, we recognize something. In the resurrection, something happens between our individual and corporate relationship with God and God himself. And that is the possibility of communication, what we call prayer, in other words. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, he would not be our living Lord who could speak to us in the 21st century. You can try to talk to someone who has died and is still dead, and it will be a one-way communication. If any of you have tried it, you know that that is obviously true. But because of the resurrection, the possibility of an intimate communication and friendship with God becomes opened up to us as individual and corporate expressions of fellowship. 
And that friendship with Jesus made possible by the resurrection creates the church and its being. You're covering John 15 tonight. It makes me sad I have to go home because that's like my favorite chapter in the Bible because in John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you my friends because I have revealed to you all that God the Father wants you to know. And so the beauty of the resurrection is that it opens up the possibility of an intimate sense of friendship with Jesus and God and thereby also with his friends, one another. And so the church, as the community of friends under the friendship of Jesus, is only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. But that then brings up another point, which is individual. That is, if Jesus has truly been raised from the dead, he can talk to each and every one of us individually through his word and by other means as well. When I was a child growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I grew up in a Jewish family. We were not religious, but we were clearly self-identified as Jewish. I was proud of being Jewish as a young boy. We had survived the Holocaust. We had created a new country in the Middle East, Israel. And even in New York, I knew I was Jewish because I loved bagels, lox, and cream cheese, and none of my Gentile friends would go near it. We celebrated Passover and Hanukkah, and during such holidays, I often received hostility from non-Jewish members of the community who made it known that we were different, set apart, somehow not fully welcome. And so I grew up in New York City, proud to be Jewish, not religious in the sense of going to synagogue every Saturday, because my family did not go, but realizing I was not a Gentile and that the Christian world was alien to me. I knew nothing about Christmas. I did not know the Easter story. I did not know the songs that Christian children learned during those holiday seasons. I was completely unaware of what happened inside a church building on Sunday morning, never having gone once in my childhood. But in the midst of that separation, being Jewish from Christianity, Deep in my heart, I yearned to be friends with God. And so I undertook, at a young age, the reading of the Old Testament privately all by myself. I loved the story of Abraham. I loved the story of Joseph. I loved Moses and David and Isaiah, and particularly Ezekiel. I thought he was really cool. I thought his visions were pretty neat. And so in the midst of my childhood, by myself... I developed my own understanding of Judaism. And the thing that tormented me the most was that I knew I was not perfect, morally, ethically, spiritually. But the law of Moses said I had to be perfect. You know the Ten Commandments, don't you? But that's just the introduction. There are 613 commandments, way too many for any rational person to want to memorize, which meant, unwittingly, you either didn't keep the law consciously or you messed it up unconsciously. And I was tormented. How could I have forgiveness if I was not perfect? Well, the law of Moses made that very clear. An animal sacrifice 
on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That would do it. But we don't do that anymore in the 20th and 21st centuries. There was no temple. There was no tabernacle. There were no such sacrifices. And I went to my relatives and I said, how can I be forgiven? And they thought I was jesting them and never gave me an answer. When I was 14 years old, I was alone in my house. And I had an experience that totally transformed my life. Suddenly, watching television, I felt a presence in my house. I can't quite describe it. It felt like a tingling sensation, like when your arm falls asleep, except it was from head to toe. Something told me that there was something, someone, in my house. I thought it was a burglar. And so I knew just, how do you know these things? I just had a sense that whoever had broken into my house was upstairs in the bedroom I shared with my older brother, Marty. I ran upstairs, and I had the most incredible experience of my life. As I was surveying the room, looking for the intruder who I could not see, but feeling that tingling sensation from head to toe, I said to myself, what should I do? And then I heard a voice. Now, I'm not mentally ill. I have had many psychological tests. You don't become the pastor of 285 churches if you're not pretty well together there. You know, my wife says at least I'm mostly normal, right? And I heard a voice. Now, the voice I heard was just like you hearing my voice. It sounded external to me. But I don't know what you would have heard if you were in the room that evening. But I heard it. And just as I was looking at my brother's bookshelf, it said, pick up that book over there. As I spotted a book, my brother had sneaked into the room months before, and I had never noticed before. I went to it. I dusted it off. It was a New Testament and an Old Testament together. I had never seen a Christian Bible before in my life. And there I was holding it. So I said, what do I do next? And that voice spoke to me a second time. And it said, turn to the last pages of this book. So at random, I flipped. And I ended up on Revelation chapter 19, which describes a vision that absolutely startled me. When I was a child, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was in Israel. And while there, I was on a mountain. And I looked up, and I saw a rider on a white horse and behind him many, many angelic beings. And in the dream, I raised my right arm, pointed to the first rider, and said, that's my Messiah. And the dream ended. The dream would happen about once every year. It began when I was about seven or eight years old, and came to the point where I've memorized the scenery, etc. I know exactly what I saw. I read Revelation chapter 19. For those who know it, it's the rider on the white horse vision that the Apostle John had. My secret dream was in the book of Revelation. Someone had stolen it from me, <laughs> written it in a book, and published it without my permission. The, ver the chapter never tells you who the rider on the white horse is, except to say he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. I knew that was Messiah. I was waiting for him. So I said, what do I do next? And the voice spoke one last time. And it said, turn to the first page of this New Testament. 
I didn't know what the first page was. It's the book of Matthew, chapter 1. I found out through the table of contents. I knew how to read a book. And when I got there, I read verse 1. This is the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That meant that Jesus was the Messiah, son of David. That's a code. Son of Abraham meant that Jesus was Jewish. No one had ever told me that. Somehow I had missed that. I thought Jesus was Christian because only Christians liked him. And no Jew I ever knew had a last name of Christ. It's not common. Spitzer is much more common than Christ in my community. And I kept reading until I came to verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. At that moment, I knew that Jesus was my Messiah. And right there, I committed my entire life from then to my death to him. And my entire life was transformed. I never realized what an adventure it would be becoming a Jew who was a Christian. But that was the adventure that was launched when I was 14. But one lesson I learned is the very lesson that Paul warns us about. After a resurrection experience, we Christians are called to experience the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Isn't that what the text says? So Jesus proved to me he was alive by speaking to me and then through his word. And then he put me on a path of loss. I quickly discovered that most of my family was not happy with my conversion. And for more than 30 years, no one outside my, my primary family would even talk to me anymore because I became a Christian. I lost my family because of Christ. And then when I was 17 years old and getting ready for college, I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought that's what a good Jewish boy should be. Jewish boys are either lawyers or doctors. And I had chosen law because I am squeamish around surgery. I didn't want to deal with that. And when I was 17 years old, after I had applied to seven pre-law programs from the top universities in the country, Jesus spoke to me. And he said, you're not going to become a lawyer. You're going to become a pastor. And I said to Jesus, as only a 17-year-old could, God, you're wrong. <laughs> don't you understand Jewish boys don't become pastors. We become lawyers. That's what we're called to do. And God was gracious to me. And for one month, we fought about this during my last year in high school until finally I gave in to do his will. And here I am now, 40 years later, testifying to you that you know what? God was right. That in fact, though I had to die to my family, I had to die to my vocational dream. In those experiences of loss and death, I would discover the richness of Christian life and spirituality and friendship with people all over the world who I never thought I would ever meet or talk to, friends like you. And so I have learned in 40-plus years now of Christian life that every time we experience the resurrection power of Jesus, we are called to enter deeply into the mystery of his voluntary embrace of sacrifice, of loss, of sub substitution, of atonement, so that we might become identified 
fully, not just with his resurrection, but with the mystery and beauty of his death as well. We now turn to communion. And I would like to suggest to you that that's precisely why today we have gathered to take the bread and the wine. Like baptism, which reminds us that we have died to sin and risen to a new life of freedom in Christ, we come to take the Lord's Supper. Why? As people who believe and have experienced the resurrection power and friendship of Jesus, he invites us to remember his death until he comes back. It's exactly what Paul meant in Philippians. And what we do when we take that bread and wine is we discover beyond the symbols the awesome depth and beauty, the height, depth, and richness of the love of God poured out to us. The resurrection power of communication has been given to us so that we can enter into the deepest aspects of the love of God as manifested in the death of Jesus Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, I invite you today to come to that mystery. No matter what your background, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter when it was that you first experienced that resurrection power, that new life, that word from God that told you that Jesus was real, that God was real, that grace was real, come now and see the source of all that the mystery of the fellowship of sharing the sufferings of Christ becoming metamorphosized, changed into the likeness of his death so that, strengthened by the blood and the wine, we might fulfill one of the great commands of Jesus to take up our cross daily and follow him wherever he may lead. It is because of his resurrection that we can take up the cross as his followers. Let us do so with hope, with faith, with courage, with joy, with expectancy. For God is about to lead us into the mystery of his love for us and give us new life so that we might joyously give it away to others who are seeking it. Come now to the mystery of the Passover, to the mystery of the Lord's Supper. Amen.